Good morning. Good afternoon. Good. Hi. Junior, a special featuring my co-host Mark. Good afternoon. Wonderful. And uh, we also have Susanna Austin joining us today. Today's special is called Post-Colonialism and Foreign Aid. We're diving into a little bit about what's taking place in St. Vincent and the Grenadines and then exploring the ideas around the impact of post-colonialism, of course. Okay. I'm just looking for Susanna to join us very shortly, and we will get going. Jermaine, I'm going to apologise because I'm going to have trains and planes going past me, so there will be, there will be interruptions. So I apologise in advance. At the moment, um, yeah, you'll notice the difference when, when they come absolutely out. wonderful. And uh, it sounds like Susanna has joined us. Susanna, welcome. Yes. Come on, Susanna. Good afternoon. How are you guys doing? <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. And you guys? Very good, thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'm fine, thank you, Susanna. Thank you. Awesome. Just enjoying the nice, warm sunshine. Oh, yes. How is it in the garden? Lovely. It's really nice. All the flowers are out, so it smells like I'm sat in a little vase of flowers. Oh, how green is your garden how green well yeah. actually it's mostly pinks and <laughs> lilacs okay. how pink is your garden but how big is it no how green uh, how pink is it how pink is it uh, at the moment very pink because I've got a couple of clematises that have just gone completely wild and covered a couple of fences oh so yeah, when we used to have black and white TV, they used to say when the snooker was on, they they used to say for those of you watching in black and white, the pink boy is now behind the red. Yeah. So it feels a bit like that. You describing your garden while we're sitting uh, on the on the pod. Well, the garden so, uh, was actually designed to be a sensory garden. So um, okay, okay, it's more about what it smells like and how the things that are grown in it can be used. So I tend to use almost everything that's grown in it, either in cookery wow. or in fragrances. So again, on the radio, that doesn't transmit as well as it could, but yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's a very small garden, but basically everything's kind of grown vertically. Oh, nice. They, they did that in, in France, apparently. They have these roof gardens where everything is grown vertically because they can't do it horizontally because it'd be too heavy. You collapse the roofs, but they don't have a lot of space. So a lot of people have been growing things and they've got huge networks now of gardens grown vertically on roofs. Exactly. It's amazing what space you have growing vertically. And yeah, you have yeah. the benefit of the warmth coming from either the wall or the fence. Yeah. When you're sort of at the edge of the fence, like I am. So it helps. Wow. It means peaches, nectarines, figs, etc. will all grow. So if you're tuning in now, you think you've got into Gardener's World, we're actually <laughs> going to be discussing yeah. something slightly more contentious than how green the garden or pink the garden is. Uh, it does Jermaine. actually link in. Yeah, it does. does it? I was just it about does. to pick this up will that. This will be interesting. Um, so where, where are the connections with what you grow and post-colonialism tied in? Where do they tie in? Well, you've got the colonialism of food, how food was transported. It's not just people that were taken around the world and transplanted, but foods were taken from one continent into another. Indigenous foods were wiped out as being not suitable for the colonists. Examples of which would be things like amaranth and taro and quinoa were almost obliterated because they were not seen as fit for a Spanish stomach. But instead, oh, really? potatoes were more favoured and dahlia. Um, but if you look at places like St Vincent and the Grenadines at the moment, 
a lot of their native habitat is quite fragile and a lot of it was also transplanted across especially the spices coming across from India and Africa and small upsets in the natural environment really disrupt what the fragile soil because it's volcanic soil can grow yeah so I've got a feeling that was what they had the problem with when the early so-called settlers went to the United States they were virtually all wiped out and it took help from the native Indians which they then wiped wiped out to help them grow anything that they could survive on in the settlements that they they initially set up the 13 the 13 you know things on the stripes on the flag where the initial settlements were i think one of the forms of planting that we get actually quite sadly from the native cherokee um americans Mm. was a type of bean that they took with them on the trail of tears it was their heritage so they took oh. a form of planting with them and they were marched across America quite horrendously by the colonialists. And within these beans, there was a way of planting where the beans were nitrogen fixers and the beans you could then grow squash, which took a lot of nitrogen. And then in amongst the beans, you could grow peppers. So you get what's known as three sisters planting. So it's either beans, squash and peppers or beans, squash and tomatoes and corn goes in there to form the sticks for everything to grow up. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, but literally it works as an ecosystem, but it's very fragile. One takes nitrogen out of the air, one enriches the soil, one then puts nitrogen back in. It's a very clever method. And then if you go further south, you've got the Prata Negro of the Amazonians that was also not understood how the black earth was created. It's not a natural thing in the Amazon rainforest. It's created and the soil there is also very fragile alongside the floating gardens, which the Azteca used, which we now call hydroponics. Okay. And how does that compare from yesteryear to nowadays like what are the differences in how we carry out hydroponics um well i've actually got a few little hydroponics setups as i do a lot of experimental gardening um so mine unfortunately are not huge reed beds floating down a river that i'm able to use the silt from the bottom of the river to keep putting on the top which is what the azteca did but instead i have small little tanks where I can grow things like strawberries or lettuce or peas and things like that year round on windowsills. And I can do that in a soilless environment. So I'm growing in water with seaweed as the nutrient. And I'm using lava stones that I pump air through to oxygenate. Oh, wow. Um, It's actually a far more it's not just more environmentally friendly, but some of the more indigenous ways of growing, especially the interplanting and canopy planting and things like that, far more productive than Western intensive methods of farming. You get a lot more per acre mm. by using traditional methods. And I meant what the Azteca were able to manage in the 1500s far surpasses even the French market gardens, which are hailed as like the be-all and end-all of European farming, which peaked around the 1800s, um, the Azteca were massively able to outcrop them. But it's it relies on people knowing what they can do and understanding the soil that they're working with. Mm-hmm. And part of colonialization was this belief that the soil was wasted. It was seen as waste land. So the colonists took the land and so-called enriched it by putting European farming methods or plantations onto it, not understanding that... But what's interesting... Yes, sorry, Mark? I was going to say, what's interesting just before that was one of the first settlements was Virginia. Um, And the whole idea of going there was to find gold. Uh, The two companies from London encouraged them to go out there and find gold. And um, huge numbers of their initial colony died because they didn't have enough food and they were growing the wrong type of food. 
And it was only because of one guy called Captain John Smith, who had worked with the native Indians, that they were able to survive at all. So that colony would have been completely wiped out uh, if if they hadn't have um, listened to him, because they that, were doing it all wrong. Yeah. And it was the Powhatan Indians. That's the other side of Thanksgiving. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went celebrate Thanksgiving, but if you look at what the Spanish did when they landed in Hispaniola, you had yeah. the, um, the Tenho at the time they believed numbered several million across um, the Caribbean and parts of mainland Latin America. Um, within ten years, they numbered less than one million, and within another ten years, they numbered less than two hundred thousand. Wow. But the methods they had of farming were not seen as farming by European standards because they weren't destroying the land. It wasn't neat little lines with furrows and huge fences. Mm. Yeah. It's a very different way. And when you look at climate change and environmental impact, that's very related to colonialism. Mm. Because... Mm-hmm. The destruction of the environment happened at the same time as the destruction of the people. Just, the kind of, just to kind of comment on that, um, are you aware of Greta Thunberg? Greta Thunberg. She's amazing. I, I, I yeah. You know what? As time goes on, I'm becoming more and more like um, I'm paying more and more attention to her. She's become quite an interesting character for me because she is basically protesting against the um, the conference in November um, in regards to the unfair distribution of the vaccine across mm-hmm. the North Global South divide. Um, so she's making a point by saying, I'm not attending because this is unfair. Exactly. And it happens on all kinds of things. It's like we think of famine as being a food shortage. Well, quite often famine is not caused by a shortage of food, but a shortage of money to access the food. So, or or the the, the fact that you have to sell food to 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 cover the basic needs that you need outside of food. I mean, Ireland was a good example where they had potatoes. It wasn't they didn't have potatoes, yeah. but the problem was they had to use them to for, for, to pay the landlords and things. Exactly. Well, in the Bengal famines, they were shipping more than they were. Exactly. They were yeah. exporting more than they were using to feed. Um, yeah. Conventional wisdom will tell you, I've got a family of three that live in my house, three adults, and we a very vegetable and fruit-rich diet. One of the yeah. people who's vegan, and the other two of us are, I suppose the modern term would be flexitarian, but we tend to eat more vegetables and fruit than anything else. Conventional wisdom will tell you by European standards, I would need about a third of an acre to grow enough vegetables. Um, British wisdom will tell you that it would be impossible because we have a small growing season here. So there'd be no way that I could grow enough vegetation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a garden that is only 17 foot wide by, I only have um, 15 foot of growing space in length. So 17 foot by 15 foot. Not very large at all. And I can grow about 80% of the fruit and vegetables that we need through the year by using older methods of growing food. So using hydroponics, using vertical canopy growing. Canopy growing is still used in many places in Kenya and Uganda. Um, It's where you interplant by layers. So you create the shade for, say, lettuces by planting things above so that you can then shade down. See, I think it would be very interesting to do a session with you just on that. Because I, I think that probably deserves uh, its own um, pod. Yes. Yeah. There must be so many people that could learn from that. It'd be really interesting to explore that with you, because especially for people who are not gardeners, because most of the population struggle to become gardeners or have allotments and they don't always get this. It'd be really good to do a pod with you just to explore that topic. Well, this is pro- lazy. This is lazy gardening. This is called. I did a bit of studying on the Aztec, and I was like, "Wow!" So you can grow without soil. That suits me. I don't like getting dirty. You can <laughs> no digging. Even no, I think Susanna, we should do lazy gardening with Susanna as a pod session. Yeah, um, I'm up for that. 
Oh, well, cool. Okay. But let me play the dumb guy that doesn't know anything about gardening because that would be a role that I don't have to, you know, grow into. I've already got the, the performance ready. <laughs> so we could work together, like just talking and seeing how we could explore that. Okay. Then we, can, uh, then we can help other people then to, to have a better grasp of how they could deal with their gardens. Well, the gardening leads on to kind of, um, in a strange way, what's happened over in St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. Wow, okay. To, to explain the link. It's a kind of a tenuous link, but St. Vincent um, was, until very recently, one of the most beautiful of the Caribbean islands um, in terms of vegetation and relied very heavily on tourism because of it. Okay. So the volcanic soil means that they had, although very light, you know, not a great depth of soil, it was very mineral rich, which made it an ideal growing environment for many different plants. Um, it was quite internationally famous for some of the spices and particularly some of the flowers and the heady scents. Mm -hmm. However, a volcano has just wiped out almost the vast majority of the vegetation on the island, which gives a double impact in terms of the island. First, it almost wipes out the tourism, mm -hmm. which the island relied on very heavily. But in the very short term, it almost wipes out the food and the water. And what the volcano hasn't destroyed, the sulfur cloud, will definitely impact quite heavily. And that is down to colonialism because, again, a lot of these things weren't native on that island. Um, the ways of doing things were not necessarily in terms with what the island, you know, living in a harmony with nature on that island, it wasn't it been supplanted by colonialism. But I suppose even worse is the cost of the natural destruction of that island and what it costs the people that are living there. Mm -hmm. In um, terms of... Yeah, sorry? Yeah, sort of in terms of what? Like, explain that. Expand on that a little bit, if you could. Okay, currently, St. Vincent has a population of about 110, 115,000 people. They've got a public debt of roughly $686 million, which equates to around $6,000 per person. That may not sound too massive when comparing it to the British national debt, but by comparison, that is over the average earnings per person. Yeah. Their national debt is rising really fast, so it currently sits at about 87% of GDP which is a huge rise just in the last year alone, where they've had no tourism. The yeah, national yeah, yeah. up from 75% to roughly 87%. So it shows you how fast it can rise just with one year. I'm just looking of, at the uh, figures for St. Grinton and the Venadines public debt. Um, there's an article in January on the 27th of this year that says that the public debt has risen to $1.8 billion. Now, to kind of put, wow. put that into context, Jamaica has a national debt, this was in 2019, of around 14.3 billion US dollars. Wow. The population difference. Jamaica's debt is, is just true. slightly more than its GDP. Right. But what's the size of Jamaica's population? Oh, good question, good question. Let me just get that up for you. Uh, uh, 2.9 million great. people. 2.9 million people. Compared to, what was it you said, Susanna? 110,000? Yeah. yeah. And the debt difference is what? Uh, 1.8 versus 14.3 uh, billion in US. So proportionately, St. Vincent is way, way, way more debt for the size of its population, given given that it, it had no other resource to to fall back on when the volcano destroyed its its ecosystem mm -hmm. and tourist system. 
Yeah. And that's, as a former colonial country, you got to think that you would have thought that we owe the people of St. Vincent mm -hmm. as a nation. This is a former colonial nation. Mm -hmm. So, well, well, the other thing, Susanna, is you'd have to look at what percentage of the world debt that they have and couldn't banks just literally wipe out their debt because it wouldn't affect the banks in the slightest they could and about 10 years ago there was a big cry for a lot of debt to be wiped out and what happened was it was well a bit more than 10 years ago actually it was about 2008 going through yeah. to about 2010 um people like Bob Geldof were involved as well as various um, leaders around the world. But what they did was they wiped the debts of the poorest nations on the planet at the time. I can feel a butt coming. That, yeah, the big, big butt is those that they saw as in the middle. So not poor enough to have it wiped out completely, yep. Yep. but very precarious. So you're looking at the likes of St. Vincent, you're looking at the likes of Barbados, you're looking at the likes of Barbuda, um, Jamaica. In fact, most of the Caribbean islands um, were not considered poor enough to have their debts wiped. Oh, really? So they didn't. Yes. I'd love to know what that was based on. Yeah. That would be fascinating <laughs> to know what the criteria was. I think a lot of governments would like to know what the criteria yeah, was as well, because I think it harmed them very much. The average cost, according to the International Monetary Fund, that St. Vincent should be putting away to account for natural disasters needs to be about 1.2% of their GDP annually. Mm -hmm. However, their government can only afford to stick a buffer in of 0.5%. So every year they've got short a shortfall of 0.7% wow. per buffer. Over years, that's a lot. Of money. So this brings up the question that's of independence of for me, because if they're constantly short, they have to rely on other countries to support them, your France's and your other European settlers in the area that have previously colonised yep. the country, the island. Um, where but okay so let's talk about the impact of the volcano the, the current le soufriere um i'm seeing that there are a number of volcanoes also called le soufriere in the caribbean it's not just the one in saint vincent um but for this one how how does the national debt impact the response well the problem is like many of the islands in that area St. Vincent is B-rated in terms of borrowing, so it's classed as high risk. Not super high risk, but pretty high risk. So if you compare that to most European countries have an a, at least an A rating, some have a triple A rating when it comes to borrowing. So they get really favourable interest yeah. rates. Okay. Whereas these Caribbean islands, which get hit repeatedly with natural disasters, are B-rated. So they don't get as favourable interest rates. So they, when they borrow to try and fix the damage caused by these natural disasters, they're not even borrowing on a good interest rate. It's a bit like getting a credit card with a 34% APR. You're never going to be paying it back. Whereas if you could get one with 4 or 5%, it would be a lot easier. But what would be the criteria? Because because presumably, I mean, Britain since the Second World War has owed huge amounts of money. So they can't be called a good rating in terms of lending credit because, I mean, I know they always have to pay it back and things, but they can't be a good uh, people to lend money to because they, they, they still owe money from 1945. So, well, actually, because of some horrendous things that we a large number of countries owe us money. So we bankroll their loans, which means that some of the poorest countries on the planet make payments to us every year. Wow. That's really quite horrendous, isn't it? When you think of places like Ghana, Jamaica, they're paying us 
every year. Some of these countries, their their debt repayments are larger than their education budget. So we actually then really give them a double whammy by having a go at them for not spending enough on educating, say, girls and not having a decent enough education for people. Yet we're actually taking loan money, loan payments from them. Why are we doing that? Why do we do that? Because they paid for their independence, quite literally. Right, fine. So they still pay for their independence, effectively. They still pay for it, yeah. And they always will, unless we wipe it off. And again, that can't be very high proportion. I doubt for their like for the scale of what we what we manage in terms of money, it it would probably be unnoticeable if they. It'd be unnoticeable for us and very noticeable for them if we were to completely eradicate it. Well, in terms of what you'd call neo-colonialism, the payments that we have coming in are more than our debt, which is how we still have a pretty impressive credit rating. Because if suddenly everybody had to pay up we wouldn't have a national debt. So oh. basically, again, the third world would bankroll us because they're already bankrolling us. So the global well, South is bankrolling us. And well, they bankrolled I mean us is, for 500 years. If you, t- if you took a country, say, like Jamaica, and you said they don't no longer have to pay that, how much is it on our budget that they actually are paying? It's a sizable amount. But what percentage of the na- of the national debt or whatever that we're taking in does it, does it account for? I don't know exactly, but it is quite a decent enough amount. Oh, There's yeah, okay. some, some horrendous figures that are available. And Jermaine and I were looking through some of them mm-hmm. a few months back. And it's quite a an eye-opener. Just how, when you literally just compare a, a country's education budget with that payment, eye-opener in itself or you compare their health budget you know a whole nation's health budget compared to their debt payments to Britain wow so America China and Britain alongside France tend to be the countries that other countries owe the most money to and presumably because it's an ongoing credit thing it will never get paid off really unless they somehow came into enormous amounts of money. It could never be paid off. It would it'd be like us owing the banks. We unless we make some amazing amount of money, we're gonna consistently pay that that credit yeah. debt indefinitely. Yep. That wow. was the plan. Wow. So independence didn't really them. mean independence at all. No. Because on top of that, um, when you owe a country a lot of money um, can your decisions be seen to be truly independent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so I, was... I have a package on my house. If I suddenly wanted to make some major changes to my house, I'm sure the mortgage company might get a little bit involved. <laughs> um, yeah. And effectively, it's the same for a lot of these former colonial countries. So we still, as a former colonial power in terms of colonialism we still hold sway we still have power mm-hmm. over these countries it's a very dubious kind of position to be in having to reconcile that the fact that i'm i'm here i'm black my family's from from jamaica or come through jamaica and i've i've ended up here in the uk there's, there's a certain kind of privilege that kind of comes with that yeah mm. but also as somebody that's black that's been brought up in the UK um, it wasn't it wasn't that long ago that your taxes finally yeah. in effect paid yeah. off that was called to form that a slave owner was wasn't it as compensation. Yeah. So as a black person growing up in the UK with family from the Caribbean, so those were the slave owners that were compensated, those that were had holdings in the Caribbean. Um, your family in the Caribbean have been impacted and your family in Britain have been impacted. So not only were people in the Caribbean enslaved, but then they've paid every for that. 
the future generations have paid every week mm -hmm. for that. And I was paying that up until the age of 29. Yes, you were. I was paying it up to the age of 37. Wow. Mark, yourself? I've, I've, I've done even if I looked into it properly, <laughs> to be honest with you. Six years ago. <laughs> but then it's uh, when... Can I say pass? <laughs> I'll probably pass and get back to you on that one. <laughs> Mark might be a little bit touchy over mentioning his age. But... Um... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I come back to you on that one? <laughs> um... Um, but then you see all this money that's been paid out by the looks of it, you know, as we know, a volcano has erupted in St. Vincent, as well as the immediate damage that it's done. The people need help now. Absolutely. There's the immediate cost, but then there's the future cost. Yeah. So their lack of income. This is an island that was already precarious, that already really concentrated on mm -hmm. tourism. So it didn't have a manufacturing base like Jamaica does. And it was really about your yachting fraternity that was okay. coming in. And it was about exclusive holidays. And basically, you know, Caribbean tourism, if you like, but exclusive tourism. So this is something that is likely to affect them for many years. And it doesn't just affect on the everyday stuff. It will affect the people that have the small businesses on the island as well, because their market have, has now gone. So if they were relying on tourists to sell things, that market is potentially no longer there. So presumably that market won't be there for a while, though, because it's going to take a long time to you know, get the country in a position where it can facilitate it in the way that it was before. Even if the volcano stopped erupting, say, that's what I mean, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. um, it's going to be at least two years for it to start greening back up a little mm. bit. Yeah. Um, at least. So you're probably, yeah, you're probably looking at about five years, I'm guessing, before you've got any semblance of it getting back. So I remember that being the case around the tsunami, around... Um... Yeah, you know, sort of the Asian countries when they had the tsunami, it was it took a long time for for that to to be anywhere near close to being uh, comparable to where it was before that had affected their countries. And oh, as a nation, St Vincent had just invested in trying to get renewable energy oh, wow. for the island. They had a plant that was going to produce about 80% of the electricity from for the island renewably mm. and there's a lot of talk about whether that what they were doing there actually caused the volcano no it didn't you know it was going to go off anyway but it was geothermal energy that they were going to be using yeah so they've also got a lot of inf a loss of infrastructure as well as the loss of income. They've got things like loss of fresh water, loss of infrastructure. And this was already quite an impoverished country. It didn't so to ask a really stupid question, you know, when you when people talk about uh, international aid coming to help in situations like this, presumably it doesn't look into any of that. It's just literally just short-term, um, you know, initial mm. inputs. I think it depends who the aid is coming from. Um, unfortunately, international aid has had quite a murky name following what happened in Haiti, following the disaster relief effort that happened over there, um, where the people ended up exploited again. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> wow. International aid done correctly I think CARICOM have come together to try and offer international aid, at least relief and assistance. Okay. People of St. Vincent in the short term, but longer term, something more is going to be needed. And I suppose my argument on this would be that the colonial power that basically exploited that island for so long should come to its rescue. And it should be, there should be no loan payments on it.
yeah, yeah. Shouldn't be charged. Has that ever been done anywhere? Sorry? Has that ever been done anywhere by any colonial power? Has it ever been the case that they've put something like that into place? France does a lot better than we do, but they do it with their their current overseas territories. So if one of their overseas territories in the Caribbean has an issue, France tends to get aid to them a lot faster. They treat it as one of the areas of, they treat their overseas territories as one of their metropole areas. Whereas we tend, yeah, that's why they also were part of the EU. (laughs) Um, Okay. Whereas we tend to treat our overseas territories a little bit differently. So whilst if something happened on Jersey or Guernsey, we might be quite quick. The further away you get, so you start talking about the Falklands or Barbuda, um, slightly different. I mean, when you look at the hurricane that went through um, and hit Barbuda not that long ago, only a few years ago, I believe the Dutch were there before we were. Okay. And that was one of our overseas territories. But with the French example you gave, did they take into account helping the country for the next sort of five to ten years as well afterwards? Or is it just for the period where that sort of crisis had, had happened? My understanding is it's literally treated the same way as a district of mainland France. So in the same way that they would have to help out mainland district of France in the future to rebuild they treat uh, that overseas territories. That's quite interesting. Uh, what about the United States? I presume they copy us, do they? Uh, no, the Ni- United States are worse than us. Um, oh, they're worse than us. If you look at Puerto Rico, I think that's a case in yeah. point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, not only did the Puerto Ricans not have a vote, but when a hurricane almost wipes out the island, the US t- seems to turn a blind eye on getting them aid relief or at least electricity. You know, just mm. some basic. Um, but there's no universal sort of system it's literally down to the individual colonialist countries to decide what system they're going to put in place yeah that's interesting that's interesting as well there's when you start looking at the UN and things like that and you realise that it's those same colonial countries that make most of the decision, the same former colonialist countries, with yeah, the addition of yeah, yeah. China, that are responsible for most of the decision making. You can see that the system is skewed right mm. from the top. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Something to think about. It really I mean, is. There are actually a larger number of diaspora of St. Vincent living overseas than there are currently the population of St. Vincent. In that way, it's like Ireland, that the community living outside is larger than the community inside. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, of the, a lot of the disaster's relief relies on that um, diaspora to raise the funds. And especially when you get to Britain, we all know that um, black families are some of the hardest hit financially. Mm. Mm. So you're relying on the hardest hit in one society to try and pick up the pieces of another group that's been very hard hit, all because of the same cause. And that cause was colonialism. Mm. Mm. And so a little bit of the story with uh, Le Soufrère volcano in St. Vincent is that the um, there's three like zones, if you like. So there's the red zone, yellow or amber, and green. Um, and it sort of progressively gets to green across the island as you go further south. So immediately in the immediate area, we have the red zone. There are a lot of families I'm hearing that are choosing not to leave. Um, and there are families who can't leave because they just can't get access to, to people there. Um, like how how because they're stranded you mean they can get into these areas like how 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 will that work out how does it work out 
I think you need to take into account that you're looking at a country that by European standards is not very wealthy. Mm. So when we're saying that people can't get out, quite often um, they don't have the financial means. So I've heard from people that were told that they needed to take several days food with them to mm -hmm. go into the shelters because shelters were opened up. They didn't have the kind of money to take several days food with them. They're used to getting their food, you know, almost every day. So the most they could muster was three days food. Right. Now, if you look at most British families and you say to them, take several days food, might not be the food that you want, but you could empty your fridge, your freezer, your cupboards, and you might end up eating the same thing for a little bit, like rice in my case, but you would have enough food mm -hmm. to get you through. So when they say they're running out of food and fresh water, that's not, you know, at some point in the future, it becomes a far more immediate situation than it is in, say, Europe, when something similar might happen. Wow. Interplace, we've also got the issue with the infrastructure on the islands. Um, I don't know if airports have reopened, but I know that they were closed because obviously you had a volcano erupting. Mm. So airports were closed on neighbouring islands as well as on St Vincent and the Grenadines. I know that you've had uh, cruise ships docking and I'd imagine that you've got other ships getting in to right. get aid in. But how fast they can get in, I don't know. We haven't had... Covid has also, in effect, <laughs> meant that the normal ships that would be in the Caribbean just aren't there. A lot of them are birthed in the US because the tourist industry is effectively oh, been closed down for a year. I was just about to ask, these are colonial, uh, not colonial, your commercial um, shipping. Yeah, commercial shipping. Um, you know, we've COVID has shut down so much of that. So not only of your cruise ships, but your commercial ships, your containers, all the normal shipping that would be happening in the Caribbean has been on a ghost slave. And we also year. had the, um, the issue so, in the Suez Canal. Yes. Yeah. So you've kind of got a multiple impact of everything going on. With a country, I know that they were looking at saying that it's probably going to cost them another 20 million yeah. in the short term to get through it. Now, 20 million is going to massively impact their national debt. Yeah. It's going to put it up Especially if it's only 110,000 people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And less and less as, as the days and hours go on. Um, uh, like, so people are being evacuated from the island to other islands nearby. What is usually the case in terms of having people return? Is Is that going to be an option or... Like what's going to happen with those families? Some of them, I'm aware, have been broken up as well. Um, what's going to happen there? I think that really depends on the aid agencies and the individual governments that are trying to coordinate this and the St Vincent government, what the president over there is able to coordinate for his people. And get on, I know that the High Commissioner's the St Vincent High Commissioners are trying as hard as they can to get aid over there. But you are looking at quite a poor nation and it really does impact the difference on when you're getting help to quite a poor nation and also when you're putting the people that are displaced into other poorer yeah. nations because they will also yeah. need support. If they're taking in a large number of people by their standard, they are going to need support to help those people. Mm -hmm. You can't just displace, I don't know, 50,000 people from one island, put them onto another island that already has their own financial issues and expect that island to be able to support them mm -hmm. adequately. So there's going to be a huge, or there needs to be a huge effort internationally, I think, to try and ensure that everybody is kept as safe as possible and can be returned. I mean, compared to Montserrat, um, which I think was the last time 
one of the islands was affected yeah. this badly. Hopefully it will go better than Montserrat did. Mm. Yeah. Um, Mark, we were talking about sort of some of the preamble before this show and uh, you brought up Myanmar. Do you want to uh, expand on that? Well, I was just saying that, that um, the British government, as far as I was aware, is still trading and aiding with Myanmar, even though it objects to the, in theory, to the behaviour of the military government there, whereas certain other countries have actually withdrawn their support in any le- on every level until the, the behaviour stopped of the military government. So how, how does this kind of, like, tie this into the show? Well, I'm not sure that I I know enough about it to be able to properly tie in. What I'm saying to you is that to some countries, they use the the aid packages as political uh, sort of war things, if you like. So, you know, if you don't, like Susanna was saying earlier, that if you don't don't go along with the way the bank wants you to behave, so, you know, we would expect a certain behaviour from certain countries that we're lending money to. But much like I think, um, you know, Britain's done this in a number of countries where they don't like to actually pull out their aid uh, because presumably for the reasons that Susanna has outlined earlier, which was the um, amount of money they get from it, that they've actually chosen not to get involved with that, whereas other countries have actively, as far as I'm still afraid, that they've actually withdrawn their support for the military government there. Um, I'm afraid I have to log out now. Okay. Uh, but I'll listen to the rest of the show uh, once it gets published. Uh, thank you so much, Susanna, for your amazing knowledge there. And Jermaine, thanks for hosting. Thank Appreciate that very much indeed. Well, I hope you have a fantastic afternoon, Mark. Likewise, both of you. Thank you. Good, Mark. Take care. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, Okay, so post-colonialism and foreign aid. Um, kind of just to, I guess we'll kind of wrap it up um, within the next sort of five, ten minutes or so. Um, but just to kind of lay out a, like a road map or plan for how we can get aid as a people uh, how we can organize and get aid to these countries um how can how can we do that without wanting to sound cynical i would look for aid relief that is being organized by the high commissioners of the countries because quite often our international aid will go to british owned companies that are on the ground right. in that area so if you get the aid directly to the people, I'm not saying that British-owned companies don't do a whole load of good, some of them do. But if you're trying to get aid directly to the people quickly, then go with the people that know that country well. So with a tiny country like St. Vincent and the Grenadines, I'd say use the High Commission. They are regularly trying to get money out in the short term. So what they're doing is a series of short term, if you like, funding. They've got GoFundMe pages up that every time they hit a certain amount, that funding is then released so they can get the money over there quickly. Also look for other things. Sometimes it's not money that Uh people need. Sometimes it's other everyday things that you might not even think of so with a lack of fresh water and with an ongoing issue things like hygiene products are a major problem in a hot country so you will find that there are various fundraisers and various aid agencies that are trying to get out set products so check out the aid agencies that are doing it make sure they are registered charities look at what they've done before, just check them out. The same as you would if you were doing anything in the UK, just check them out, make sure they're bona fide, and go with them. And lastly, don't give something as aid that you wouldn't use yourself. 
one of the biggest costs for aid agencies is when they receive a load of like out of date out of date food products that they can't use there's nothing worse for them than getting stuff that they really can't use because it costs them to transport the stuff and then they have to get rid of it. Mm. If you wouldn't use it yourself, don't give it. If you would use it yourself, I'm sure somebody would really appreciate it and need it. If you can't give money or products, then try and get the word out to people that can and spread the word. It's like St. Vincent is a tiny island without great infrastructure. A lot of the people there don't have mobile phones. They don't have internet. So you're looking at a country that is quite cut off in many respects. And there's a big divide between those that have and those that haven't. So look at the people that are organizing things and if they've got ways of getting money over there or getting in contact with people try and use the direct routes that they're suggesting. They probably know the easiest way through because it's not quite the same as say calling somebody in France. Um, I mean, even on a good, just to put this into perspective, even without COVID, without a volcano erupting, normally from from the UK to St. Vincent, I know from family that have been out there, normally there's one flight a week going out of the UK you go into the US and then from the US you transfer and you will go into like Barbados or somewhere like that so you can then get another flight over. Oh, wow. So you're not talking about the direct flight into countries like this. It is a small... So do island. they, in terms of like aid, getting aid to St. Vincent, are they making those flights directly? from the UK and France to St. Vincent or are they going via uh, local islands to get them maybe transferring I don't ships know whether to get in or I don't know Firstly um, St. Vincent normally can't take the huge planes but secondly I don't know with a volcano that's recently erupted whether yeah. the air is good enough for them to be flying at the moment so I would imagine they're going into neighbouring islands and then yeah. sea freighting aid across to do it that way because they can take a lot more sea freight than they can air freight so they'll be able to right. collate things and get them across but my point being that even in the best of times it's not the easiest of the Caribbean islands to get to even normally going out of London which is massive international airport you're still normally looking at a couple of flights there's not a direct just jump on a plane over you go normally it's already quite a difficult place to get in and out of interesting interesting um so i guess that there's there's like when i think about aid and what's happening in st vincent and it's happened with uh haiti and you know, there's stuff going on in Myanmar, things going on in Africa, um, around the world, all over the world, all at the same time. Everybody needs a bit of money. Um, the the impact of that is is huge because if if a natural disaster happens, there's a lot of money that needs to be directed in that direction. However fast or slow it, it comes, there's there's money being transported along with you know the food and the product and the the support the infrastructure and systems to to offer these people help um it it's i guess is it based on like a credit uh sort of rating in terms of how quickly they get the help there or is it something else no, normally the help will come quite quickly. It just, I suppose the credit rating depends on how much they right. pay for that help. And that's the other big problem. So we have a few natural disasters here, but where we're a very developed nation with a lot of infrastructure, we don't see them as natural disasters. They're just things that happen every year. So we have flooding. It causes some devastation and there is some loss of life horrendously yeah. most years but usually the immediate flood damage is resolved within mm-hmm. a few weeks 
we don't have things like cholera outbreaks. We don't have dysentery outbreaks. We don't have issues with open sewage problems mm-hmm. afterwards. Life pretty much returns to normal relatively quickly. And it's usually property damage that's the bigger right. problem. So flooding yeah. inside the properties. If you're in a country where that infrastructure is not there, if the same level of flooding happened, as well as the immediate effects of the water, you've got to deal with the medical implications and the disease outbreaks. Mm. And that's one of the benefits we have of being in a richer nation, a more affluent nation. But our affluence was built upon those nations that are now poorer. And it's the same by them. It was them that paid for us to be affluent. Exactly. And them sustaining it is part of the reasons why they've remained poorer. To enable us not to be. So sometimes when you're looking at the disasters that are happening, it's not that they don't know how to deal with them. It's not that they don't want to deal with them. It's that they actually can't. And it's not due to know-how. It's due to finance. Mm. It's a pretty it's a pretty tough conversation to have because it's it's reconciling the fact that people need urgent help and then it's well we kind of live in a country that has been sustained by that country so surely we should be helping them as quickly and as efficiently as possible ah it's it's but then it's, it comes along with oh we, we live in a, in a colonial like the, the original colonial country it, it's oh, it's yes. a really icky situation to be in until we fully reconcile ourselves with mm. the colonial past and our colonial present only then i think can we move towards a future where people are treated a bit more equally and there's a bit more understanding on top of that we've you know we're trying to cut our international development budget and things like that and you're thinking well hang on this is money that is desperately Mm -hmm. needed so i don't know it is a very hard one but i know that when i i'm lucky enough that i live in a house that's very solidly built so my house can withstand hurricanes. Yeah. yeah, I know that some of my family, as much as they try, you know, some of their properties, every time a hurricane hits, which is kind of like clockwork because of where they live, um, their properties sustain some quite major damage. So they end up with this vicious cycle of repairing the damage, and another hurricane comes along. Again. Yeah. Whereas if they had the money in the first place, they could have had the property that was strong enough to withstand it. And I think the same goes on a larger scale for nations. Vincent just keeps repairing the damage at the minute, like a lot of Caribbean nations. And that's that's really, I mean, you think about debt as in say, you know, you might have student debt, you might have credit card debt, you might have a few Wonga loans or something like that. And you're constantly in the state where you're having to, you have income, then all of that income, or pretty much most of that income is swallowed by debt. So then you only have a little bit left over to actually live and improve and, and, and you know, carry out your day to day. That's the kind of, of relative struggle that a whole island is in. Yes. And they're having to, they will have to make decisions about where that money goes. And when you're looking at the people that have been displaced, um, you've got the larger interruption as well. So there's the trauma of that they've uh-huh. gone through. And they will be displaced on onto another island. That is the best possible outcome that they've managed to get safe refuge onto a neighbouring island. But then there's the long-term trauma of what's happened and whether that is also being looked at and helped because the impacts of that 
are quite long term as well. Now, in a more affluent nation, we're able to take these things into account. So when we're talking about things like the rights of a child to, you know, have a good education and things like that, we're talking about whether their school gets good A to C results at GCSE, what the class ratios are, um, whether we like the teachers or not. In less developed nations, that same right doesn't translate to things like looking at your A to C results. It looks at things like, have you got a place in a school? Are you able to get to a school? Um, is your education going to be vastly interrupted? Not for a few weeks, but potentially for several years. Are you going to be able to get a full education? They're not at the stage of choosing that education yet. And that's a whole nother question on things like these universal rights that we look at and how that plays out. Because you will have families that have been displaced because of this volcano. I'm pretty sure that top of their list is getting to safety. And unfortunately, further down that list is going to be how my children going to get their education. So you've got a long term consequence as well that potentially will play out for a generation or two and what support they can get from that. It's interesting because I'm I'm just drawing up a parallel with COVID and the the hullabaloo that we had last summer with exam results and some students not being able to take exams, some students being able to, and then there was delays with the results and they they tried to change the parameters of the grades. Uh, so it, it's kind of a, mm-hmm. it's sort of a, a similar situation. We had a crisis on an international scale but also a localised crisis in terms of the generations that are on the way through that are being heavily impacted by this at at this point. Like, once you've got your education, you've got your education, but if it's been disturbed whilst you're getting it as a 5, 6, 7, 13, 16-year-old, you can't get the grades that you need to then carry on with your life. That then has a, a further impact on them achieving those grades and moving beyond that stage. Yeah. And now imagine if during COVID it was seen as the best option was to move some of the children here quickly over to a different country for their own safety to keep them safe from COVID. Because, you know, we had some of the highest rates Mm -hmm. in Europe. So let's say, for example, to draw your parallel, we moved some of those families that were in the really high rate areas and we moved them to a country with lower rates we displaced them so now that family has also got to try and work out how to get on in that new country stabilize themselves and still that child's got to try and get an education and that's what people in St Vincent are facing in effect not only have they got the effect of the volcano and potentially losing everything they had their home their businesses but also the impact of being displaced Wow. You know, a neighbouring island might be, you know, good to go to, but it's a different culture. It's not, the Caribbean is not a homogenised culture. These are individual nations with different cultures. They they will be displaced people. And they will need the support as displaced people. And also the countries that take them in will need support to help with the displaced people. It's just like basically a big daisy chain of of support. It is, because we know from looking at other areas, when you've got displaced people and the country that takes them in doesn't get the support to look after them and they take in a large number of refugees, you end up, in effect, breeding resentment towards the people that have been taken in. So it just further impacts on those same people. They're bearing the brunt of it. So you need to give support to who's taking them in so that that doesn't happen. We we already know that that can happen. So you need to make sure it doesn't happen. 
And as you say, it's this big daisy chain of support. And I think over here, as we have benefited so much for hundreds of years, let's be honest, half a millennia out of the Caribbean and the people in the Caribbean, I think it's only right that we try and help. And we do help, not try, we actually help. And we front a lot of that cost. So I'm hoping that uh, today we have a, a few philanthropic, charitable organisations, indi- uh, individuals and people who are willing to 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 offer some help. Um, so the, well, I think one of the top tips that you mentioned was to reach out to the High Commissioner um, of that particular country's government yeah. and um, make direct contact with people there and also with people and other organisations who are on the ground there as well. Well, St Vincent have got a High Commissioner based in London. So if you're listening from London, he's very easy to contact. Um, and there are fundraising pages that he is right. involved in and has given okay. approval to. So you know that this is approved by the St Vincent High Commissioner. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Susanna. It's been absolutely awesome having you on for this podcast. Um, also, thanks to Mark as well for joining us. Um, we'll be back again to uh, explore lazy gardening at some point in the next couple of weeks um, <laughs> but yeah thank you very much Susanna and thank you to all of the Curious Anarchy podcast listeners um, that is it from us today anything you'd like to say before you leave Susanna no other than thank you for having me as a guest again on your podcast you. on your podcast thank you it's always a pleasure always a pleasure Thank you very much. If you'd like to hit us up on the Twitter or Instagram, you can do. It's at underscore Curious Anarchy. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.